All right, thank you so much for singing those songs today. I love to just hear you sing your desire to run the race. Uh, and speaking of running, children, you can be dismissed to uh, Children's Church. I see some of you already going, uh, so I don't want to delay that. Children can be dismissed to Children's Church as ages K-4 through 3rd grade uh, to meet a Children's uh, Church worker in the Welcome Center area who will walk them over to the Children's Ministry building. Um, but again, as I was saying uh, before we got interrupted here, uh, thank you so much for singing those songs about your desire to run the race that Christ has laid out before you. Uh, I trust that that is your desire and that God has given you strength to do that. And if not, if this week perhaps you felt more like you were crawling or you've fallen, uh, by hearing the singing of other brothers and sisters in Christ today, I hope your heart has been encouraged through the grace of God to continue to run the race that God has set before you. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 25. Uh, we have some special guests with us here today. There are a few of them sprinkled throughout the auditorium. I see some of them here. Uh, at the seminary this week, we're having a special, special doctoral class on preaching, uh, and I get the opportunity to spend time with, I think, six students, pastors uh, from all over in a class on preaching. Um, I'll get to spend 30 hours with them this week uh, uh, doing that. Uh, they've come today to find out what not to do uh, in preaching. I'm convinced of that, and is God has set up this plan for us. Uh, our sermon today is over a genealogy and a death report again. So uh, it should be a fascinating text to walk through, and I uh, look forward to doing this uh, with you. Uh, this morning we're going to consider the end of two people in the Bible. One man who is prominent, and the other one not. One man who is the founder, or one of the founders of the chosen people of God, Abraham. And the other, a man who was disregarded and rejected as the wrong son of Abraham. His name is Ishmael. By now you should remember a lot about God's blessing and strength provided to Abraham throughout the last several chapters. It goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25. But perhaps you don't remember much about Ishmael. There hasn't been a lot about him. So I'm going to ask you to just flip over for one second to Genesis 16. Let me just remind you of the prophetic utterance from the angel of the Lord regarding Ishmael and his existence. Look at Genesis 16 and verse 11 and 12. It says, and the angel of the Lord said to her, this is Hagar, Abraham's uh, handmaid, concubine. He said, before you are pregnant, or behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And listen to this. You remember this part of the prophecy? He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael was a wild donkey of a man who dwelled against everyone, including his kinsmen, those who would come from the line of Isaac that will later become the people of Israel. He was not only difficult, he would become an enemy of God's chosen people. So flip over to Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, what we're going to read about today uh, will be 
the death of one prominent man, Abraham, and one insignificant man, Ishmael. And I think there's a lot that we can learn about the way people die and what is said or read, what we can read concerning them. Perhaps you've heard the deathbed statements of some infamous atheist before. Uh, there's long lines of this material online that you could, you could pick out. I, I just chose two here today. Uh, Voltaire said this upon his deathbed. Uh, he was talking with his doctor before he died. and He said, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months' life. The doctor said he didn't have that within his power to do so. And then Voltaire said this. He said, then I shall die and go to hell. The final words of the atheist Napoleon Bonaparte, who said, I die before my time, and my body will be given back to the earth. Such is the fate of him who has been called the great Napoleon. What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal kingdom of Christ. Perhaps so you've read of the death statements of believers in Jesus Christ, those who have confidence that dying means they'll be with Christ and with God forever and ever. One of my favorite, favorite uh, kind of death, uh, it wouldn't be deathbed, it was uh, Thomas Cramner to Nicholas Ridley, who Ridley was a martyr being burned at the stake and the fires were intensely hot over the lower part of his body, but they did not reach to the upper half of his body. And so just in misery, Ridley was being burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus Christ in 1555 in Oxford. And Thomas Cramner said to him, he said, Be of, be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in English, England that I trust will never be put out. Or perhaps the words of Thomas Goodwin, the important English Puritan preacher who said this on his deathbed. He said, ah, is this dying? How have I dreaded as an enemy this smiling friend? If different statements here. For these final men, this last day of theirs was their best day because for them it took them to Jesus Christ. I couldn't help but think of the words of Paul the Apostle in Philippians when he says, uh, for to depart and to be with Christ is far better. That was his statement. There's a lot you can learn about people and the way they die. In this text, however, I want to draw our attention to what we can learn about God in that moment. What can we learn about God? And so today, we're going to look at Genesis 25, verses 1 through 18. And we're going to consider what Moses reveals about God in the death statements of Abraham and Ishmael. And at the end, we'll make application to our lives. As we come to uh, the death statements of Abraham and Ishmael at the end, these two statements are laid out in the exact same way in verses 1 through 18. In verses 1 through 11, we learn about Abraham's end through a genealogy and a death report. Okay, and then we're going to turn and look at Ishmael's end in verses 12 through 18 through a genealogy and a death report. Okay, so it's a very simple outline. It should go pretty quickly. Let's look first at the genealogy at the end of Abraham's life, verses 1 through 6. 
It says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Okay, so in this first genealogy about Abraham, near the end of his life, we learn about 16 descendants that come from Abraham and another wife that we hadn't heard about in the text at this point. Her name is Keturah. Now, though Sarah has died already in the narrative and been off the scene for quite some time, we don't know exactly when Abraham marries Keturah. We don't have like a fixed date or fixed time in his life. And so that has led a good number of students of Scripture to argue and try to make a case for Abraham marrying Keturah either before or after the death of Sarah. And what complicates it a bit in this text She's called not only a wife, but later on in verse 16, it's implied that she's a concubine. So we don't know if she's a concubine or wife. I think her status is a wife-concubine. Okay, we'll just merge them together. It seems to me, though, that there's no strong reason not to think that Abraham might have married Keturah after Sarah died. Uh, No, I just used two negatives in that statement. My thought is that he married Keturah after Sarah died. I think that's how the biblical text kind of arranges things. I read it chronologically as far as I can. Sarah's already died. We've heard of her burial a few chapters before, and now we, we, we learn about Keturah. If that's the case, I just want to do some math with you here for a second, okay? So it's like going back to math class for a second. In this genealogy, Keturah bears six sons to Abraham, if you're reading them. And I'm not going to try to say their names again. Um, I practiced that quite a bit. and still didn't get through it perfectly. Abraham, a few things you know about Abraham. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. You remember that? He was 100 years old. Later on, Sarah dies when she's 127, and since Abraham is 10 years older than Sarah, when Sarah dies, Abraham is a 137 years old. In the very next verse, a verse we haven't read yet, in verse 7, we find out when Abraham dies. He's 175 years old when he dies. Okay? And so if... Abraham married Keturah after Sarah dies, that means they would have had 38 years to have six sons. And I say, since that's possible mathematically, I think it might be that he married Keturah after Sarah dies. Now, some would object to this and say, well, it'd be highly unlikely, right, for an old man like that. I mean, 137 to 175 to bear five children? But again, I would say any of the births of Abraham's children after 100 years of age are a miracle of God. 
It seems to me that once God gave Abraham the ability to have children again at the age of 100 with Isaac, he gave Abraham the continual ability to produce children for quite some time after that. One man said it this way, his name is Gordon Wenham, he said, uh, Abraham, who had so much difficulty fathering one son earlier in his life, now enjoys new procreativity in his latter years. And so to me, whether Abraham's having all of these children when he's 110 or 140 really doesn't make me doubt the miraculous nature of each one of these births. And so I think it's better to see Abraham remarrying after Sarah's death when he's about 140 years of age. You imagine Abraham's life at this time. We just, in the last chapter, read of the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, and we learned that they live farther to the south from Abraham quite some distance. And so imagine Abraham in his later years, perhaps feeling quite lonely, not having the same relationship he had with Sarah. As a matter of fact, if you've been widowed here today, you might understand the loneliness that Abraham may have felt during these years. And so, according to my perspective, Abraham remarries, and uh, there's nothing wrong or strange about this for an elderly man to do so. Perhaps you're here today, and your father or your mother or your grandmother or your grandfather is considering remarrying someone after the death of his or her spouse. I want you to know that there's nothing wrong at all with that. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says it's a good thing It's a good thing we are only to remarry someone, though, that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be happy for our elderly brothers and sisters when God provides for them in this way. And so God gave Abraham, I think, about 35 years with his new wife, Keturah, and I'm sure it brought encouragement to both of them. Now, in this first genealogy, I think that Abraham has two significant purposes for it. Um, First, I think within the text here, he is demonstrating God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to Abraham. So you say, well, what promises are you thinking of? Go back to Genesis 17, verse 4 for a moment. Look back in your Bible, and you can use one of those Bibles in the chairs around you if you need. Go back to Genesis 17, verse 4. To see one of the promises that God gave Abraham, it says in verse 4, Behold, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So in this text, we learn God changed Abram's name Because he said nations would come from him. And in Genesis chapter 25, we see that coming to be for Abraham. That's why uh, in the text, for instance, there are these places where we learn that the Asherim and the Letushim and the Leumim people, these people, for instance, are coming from the descendants of Abraham through Keturah coming from his union with the concubine wife of his elderly years. You see, overcoming the impotence of this elderly man was no problem at all for God. He had promised earlier, you were not going to just be the father of 
Isaac and of that line of people, but nations will come from you. God promised, and now it has happened. It's done. And so I think that one of the emphases from this genealogy, go back to Genesis 25 for a moment, these first six verses, is that it demonstrates God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to Abraham. But secondly, I think this genealogy emphasizes something else. It emphasizes that God's blessing lies on one particular child of Abraham by the name of Isaac. And so as you're looking down in your Bibles at verses 5 and 6, you can see that, I think. Look at um, verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of the concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Here, I think what he's doing is he's, he's saying, even in this genealogy I'm going to do with you for a while, on the non-elect seed of Abraham, I'm going to bring you back to Isaac. Okay? He received everything, and uh, Abraham sent the other sons away from him so that they wouldn't be a threat to him. And this follows a pattern, I think, in the book of Genesis. Perhaps you picked up on this a little bit in your study. Uh, normally when Moses is working his way through things and he speaks of the lives of those people who are of the non-elect, he does so quickly in one paragraph so that he can explore more fully the ones who are part of the chosen seed, the ones who will be of the seed of the woman that will bring about the one who will crush the head of Satan, the serpent. Okay, so he's done this earlier, for instance, with Cain and Seth. Way back in Genesis chapter 4, we learn about Cain and his genealogy. Cain gets six verses. Okay, it's just like Cain begets so-and-so and so-and-so and so-on. It's very quick, and then he's dismissed. Uh, but then the chosen line comes through Seth. Seth is given 27 verses, and then an entire chapter after that to talk about the conditions of the world during the life of one of his descendants. Okay, and so we see that here with the sons of Keturah. They are listed briefly and given gifts, but it's Isaac that is given everything. He is the one who's blessed by God. He will be protected by God, and there'll be a massive section about Isaac from Genesis 25 to 35, the very next section in your Bible. Okay, and so we have this genealogy, and I think it emphasizes that God's blessing is going to be on Isaac. That leads to another death report. This time it's of Abraham. Look in your Bible at verse 7. It says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. This moment we see Isaac and Ishmael come together to bury their father. He's buried in the same place that uh, Sarah was buried. 
And I want to just look with you closely at some of the wording here that's used to describe his death, because I think this is significant for the author Moses. First, he uses three verbs to capture his death. He said, Abraham breathed, he died, and he was gathered to his people. He says that Abraham was an old man full of years. Do you see that in your Bible? There is old man full of years. I think this speaks of the abundant quality and quantity of Abraham's life. It was a long life, and it was a good life. And finally, Moses says here he's gathered to his people, which I think uh, just reveals their view that what death was, it was uh, you joining your ancestors in the realm of death. So I think the, the point he's making here is not just you're going to the same burial place or the same grave, but uh, the, the point he would be making about Abraham, because he doesn't go to the same burial place as his ancestors, is that he's joining them in the realm of death. But again, even in this death report of Abraham, I think the emphasis is on Isaac again. What happens with God's blessing? In verse 11, Isaac is again mentioned. Look down at verse 11 one more time. It says, after, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. The word blessed is a word you're going to see all throughout the next few chapters, over and over again, blessed, blessing, to bless. And here the point, even in the death report of Abraham, is that God is going to honor his promises to Abraham through his offspring, Isaac. God honors his promises to the patriarch Abraham through his offspring, Isaac. God comes through on his promises. The blessing doesn't die with Abraham. And so, in, in my opinion, in verses 1 through 11, regarding Abraham and his death, what comes shining forth, the bright statement, is about the integrity of God. God will fulfill his promises to the patriarch Abraham. And he does so here by blessing Isaac after his death. Well, that's Abraham's story, the end. And uh, I want you to see uh, and learn of someone a little bit less significant in Scripture, Ishmael. Ishmael is the son of Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid. And his story uh, is given in just seven verses, in verses 12 through 18. Uh, and... Um, you know, as we, as we look to these verses, uh, we will see again that pattern where God will only briefly cover the non-elect so that he can spend more time in the Pentateuch on those who are elect. Let's look first at the genealogy of Ishmael. Look at verses 12 through 16. It says, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Matter of fact, I just saw my notes. I've got that verse twice. So <laughs> you should have seen verse 16 twice there. 
Now, in this passage, uh, we come to a genealogy of Ishmael and his sons that only goes one level deep. Ishmael has 12 sons, and they're called 12 princes or rulers. And that should be vaguely familiar to you. Look back to Genesis 17 for a moment uh, to see God's promise regarding Ishmael and his descendants. Genesis 17, verse 19. It says, God said, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, verse 20, he says, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Here, God had assured Abraham that his son Ishmael would not be entirely rejected. Ishmael would become the father of twelve princes, and a great nation would come forth from him. And so in our text, we have fulfillment of that with the names of the twelve princes and the statement that they are a great nation. Now that's the death report of Ishmael, but look back at Genesis 15 for one more little section. Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis 25, verse 17. After his genealogy, there's a death report, verse 17. It says, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, he settled over against all his kinsmen. Verse 17 reads a little bit like an obituary, doesn't it? Like a tombstone statement or something like that. He lives 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Some of the same verbs that were used of Abraham are used of Ishmael, the far less significant man in the Bible. And then we read that he settled against, his descendants settled against uh, in, in, uh, the, 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 his kinsmen in Havilah and Shur and near Egypt and Assyria. So it's a great nation of these 12 princes. They will live in hostility against the Israelite people through all of their days. Well, these are the death statements and reports of Abraham and Ishmael. And I want to close by thinking again what we have learned or what we've seen concerning God. There's one thing I would point out to you in this text, I think that's emphasized, it's that God is faithful. He fulfilled his promises to Abraham about being the father of many nations and about how the blessing would fall down to his offspring through Isaac so that even after his death, God blessed Isaac. But God did not just fulfill his promises to the prominent patriarch Abraham. He also does so to the insignificant man in Scripture by the name of Ishmael. God is faithful to fulfill his promises to Hagar and Ishmael as well. God said that he would have 12 princes that would be born to him, and that is what has happened in our text. That has come true. He said in prophecy before that 
these people would dwell against his kinsmen, and that has come true as well in this text. And so as I think of application for us today, men and women, I, I think that our application needs to be centered around the integrity of God. God's integrity. You see, God will always fulfill his promises. I want to make two applications for us today. First, if God fulfills his promises to the non-elect of Ishmael, the Ishmaelites, what do you think, or what do you suppose this means for the elect line of Israel? What will God do regarding all the promises that he's made to the Israelite people? In the Old Testament, God gave many promises to Israel, some of which that have yet to be fulfilled. So for instance, I don't know if you know this, but in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he promises that one day a ruler will come, a ruler of the Jews that will rule from Jerusalem. He'll rule the entire world. You look in uh, the chapters in uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel to see that one day a ruler is going to come and he's going to rule over Israel and he's going to rule over the entire world. That is yet to come true. This ruler will be so well known that the entire world won't have to be told anything about them because they will already know all about him. That as well, I don't believe, has come true. If you do all the math and you look at all the promises to Israel back in the Old Testament to talk about the promised land and all the land that they're going to possess, one of the things you'll find is they've yet to possess all of that land. And so the question I would have for you regarding those things is, if God fulfilled his promises even to the non-elect line of Ishmael, what do you think he's going to do for Israel, the nation of Israel in the future? I would say uh, that this is answered by the fact that the scriptures teach that there's a bright future for the people of Israel. There will be a time when Jesus will reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom to fulfill those promises because God is full of integrity. When he promises something, he will come through, right? One other application for you, and this concerns you. If God always fulfills his promises to every single person in the Bible, what do you suppose this means to you? Perhaps you find yourself here today in this room as a senior. Might I say that you can trust God to fulfill his promises to you as well. He will care for you through anything that comes in your future. As he was with Abraham and his declining and, and dying years, he will be with you. This week I had the privilege of going and visiting a member of our church in his 80s who has received uh, a report that he has a terminal disease. And I was able to comfort him from Scripture and to talk with him and his wife and to hear his testimony. He has a strong desire to please God through his death. He asked prayer from us as a congregation that we would pray for him, that he would finish strong. Would you do that with me? Days have had... He, he'll watch this service tonight or tomorrow on video, and might I tell him 
God will come through on his promise to be near you. He will never leave you. He will be with you as he was with Abraham before. We can trust him to fulfill his promises. Perhaps you're here today as a believer, united to God in Jesus Christ, but you're facing some sort of challenge. If God fulfilled all these promises to all these ancient people, what does that mean for you? I think it means this. He will fulfill what he says in Romans chapter 8 to you. In Romans 8, verse 35, Paul the Apostle said, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Men and women, these, this promise will hold true for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Even if you are currently bending underneath the load of the difficulty that you face, God will be near you. Nothing will separate you from him and the love that he's demonstrated to you in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why these old texts about death reports and genealogies are important because they reveal to us that God fulfilled his promises. And he will do so for you as well. Perhaps you're here today as an unbeliever. And you hear about a God who's full of integrity. The creator God who never lies, who always comes through, who always fulfills what he says he will do. And as an unbeliever, one who's never believed in his son, Jesus Christ, that brings you no comfort because you've never been forgiven of your sins through the work of Christ. When you consider death, for instance, when you look at your parent or your spouse or your grandparent or you consider even your own death, it brings you no confidence the integrity of God brings you no hope, just terror. Because you know that he will judge you at death. I would appeal to you in this sermon at this time, won't you repent of your sin and believe on the name of the only person who can deliver you from your sin? Won't you believe in the name of Jesus Christ today to be delivered from your sin, because God is a God of integrity. And he says concerning those who reject his son, Jesus Christ, they'll be thrown for all eternity into an everlasting fire where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. Won't you believe in the name of Jesus Christ today so that the integrity of God the faithfulness of God will bring you courage and comfort instead of fear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you are here today and God's holy character, his integrity to never 
compromise fills you with terror, won't you in this quiet moment pray and ask God to save you from your sin? Won't you in this moment believe that God sent His Son Jesus, that Jesus died in your place on the cross, and that He was raised by the power of God to free you from your sin? Won't you pray quietly to God in this moment, saying, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I have disobeyed your law. And I know that my sentence is separation from you and eternal hellfire. But God, would you save me through Jesus Christ, your Son? My brothers and sisters, I I challenge you and encourage you with this fact. Uh, The integrity of God is a bedrock upon which we live our lives. If you are going through trial or difficulty, perhaps even facing your own sentence of death, I pray that His character and His promises to be near you would be an encouragement this week. Let's pray to the Lord. O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we consider the heavens that you have created, the sun and the moon which you have ordained, we ask, what is man that you would be mindful of him? The son of man that you would remember him. God, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has made the way for us to be forgiven so that we can worship you today. And we would pray, Lord, that we would never doubt your integrity and your character. Give us strength, Lord, we pray. And to my elderly brother, who is facing challenge at the end of his race, I pray that you would give him strength to run. that you would make his faith increase and grow. That you would make his confidence of the expectation of seeing Jesus be so great that he would say with the Apostle Paul, to depart and to be with Christ, it is far better. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the room that we would all have the same type of confidence in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.